Let me ask you to turn with me to the book of Acts once again. And just back one chapter from where we were reading this morning, we're turning to Acts chapter 9. It's obviously the chapter that we read together last Lord's Day morning, but I want to read together again the bulk of the chapter and rehearse this conversion of Saul of Tarsus, for this is the last, unless we bring alongside the appearance to John in the Isle of Patmos so many decades later. This is the last of those post-resurrection appearances of Christ. So Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went into the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. I might just pause. We've read in chapter 10 today the conversion of Cornelius, and in many ways the first Gentile convert. It seems what Saul of Tarsus is trying to do here is to keep this new community of Christians at bay. Uh, to go to Damascus where there's report of a spreading of the gospel. You've seen some of the work of Philip and Stephen even included in evangelism. And he wants to bring these back so that he can contain it in Jerusalem and then ultimately snuff it out. Perhaps Paul was kicking against the council of Gamaliel that if they were fighting against it, they would find themselves fighting against God. But that seems to be Paul's purpose, to contain it to Jerusalem and then snuff it out there. But beginning again, verse 3, As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined right about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise, and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man. But they led him by the hand, and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither did eat nor drink. And there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the street which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prayeth, and hath seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in, and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. And Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priest to bind all that call on thy name. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings 
and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered into the house and putting his hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus that appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest, hath sent me that thou mightst receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales. And he received sight forthwith and arose and was baptized. And when he received meat, he was strengthened. Then was Saul certain days with the disciples which were at Damascus. And straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. But all that heard him were amazed and said, Is not this he that destroyed them which called on this name in Jerusalem, and came hither for that intent, that he might bring them bound unto the chief priests? But Saul increased the more in strength, and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is very Christ. And after that many days were fulfilled, the Jews took counsel to kill him. But their laying await was known of Saul, And they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down by the wall in a basket. And when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he essayed to join himself to the disciples. But they were all afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way and that he had spoken to him and how he had... preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. And he was with them coming in and going out at Jerusalem. And he spake boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Grecians. But the brethren knew that brought him down to Caesarea and sent him forth to Tarsus. Then had the churches rest throughout all Judea. I skipped the phrase, the Grecians, but they went about to slay him. But they went, which when the brethren knew, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him forth to Tarsus. Then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, and were edified, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost, were multiplied. Well, in there, and again, we trust the Lord to add his blessing to the public reading of his word. Let's bow our heads and our hearts together. Our Heavenly Father, we come, we pause again together to enter Your presence mindfully and come asking the help of heaven. Lord, we've read in some ways very familiar words, and yet here is truth, here is evidence of Your sovereign power and conversion. Well, truly there is food for every soul. And so we ask that you will still our hearts, give us help, the many distractions, the responsibilities, the needs that uh, encompass us round about. And may your eternal word, the truth of your eternal gospel, the glory of your eternal Son, be with us in these moments we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I'll show a little bit of my age here, but I think it was in the middle 1980s, the U.S. Postal Service issued a commemorative stamp in memory of the 500th anniversary of the birth of Martin Luther. 
I remember hearing a news commentator speaking of the controversial nature of the choice. And a historian that was being interviewed said, well, no matter what your opinion of Martin Luther, this was a man who changed history and really introduced the modern world. Well, if such can be said of a Luther, and indeed it is true, well, how much more can be said of the man that we've read of today? Saul of Tarsus. Known most familiarly to us as believers of his name throughout the remainder of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul. This man certainly was a, if not the, leading figure of those described later in the book of Acts as the ones that turned the world upside down. What a man indeed it was. What would history have been? Not merely without a Luther. What would history have been without a Paul? We've read today the story of his conversion. It's a story, interestingly enough, it's one of those things that kind of escapes our notice at times unless we do one of those rapid-fire readings of big portions of the Word. This lengthy report of Paul's conversion is recorded by Luke in the book of Acts no less than three times. Once here in the narrative itself, and then twice in Paul's various defenses in his trials before Gentile governors. It's something indeed, it appears, the Lord wants us to be familiar with. It's a story that, well, as we come to consider it today, is the last of those post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. Paul even describes it as such in 1 Corinthians 15. He says after he's recounted many of those post-resurrection appearances, all those evidences of the risen Christ, he says, last of all, he appeared unto me also. There's no uncertainty about the purpose of this appearance. Some of the other appearances are recorded, but there's no dialogue given to us. We know that appearance to Peter that is not even given in the record. It just stated that it happened. And so we don't know, except we have that window in Acts chapter 1 that he spoke to them many things concerning the kingdom of God. But here there's no question as to the purpose, to the content, to, to what happened in this post-resurrection appearance. This was an appearance of the risen Christ specifically given for the conversion of the Apostle Paul. The conversion of this one that was a most unlikely and yet a chosen vessel. What a precious description when Ananias protests a little bit to the Lord. Lord, I've heard about this man. Well, you've heard about who he is in himself. You've heard about what he's done so far in life. You've heard a little bit about his natural history, his natural inclinations. But he's a chosen vessel unto me. And here to see that this is a man that's going to speak of this Jesus before kings, before the nation of Israel, Here's a man that instead of dragging others to their martyrdom is going to suffer himself many things for the name of Jesus. How could it be? Who would have thought? 
Some, even when they hear the report, think it can't be true. It's so radical. It's so unexpected. And yet, here it is. I want us to consider today this last appearance of Christ, again, for that clear and stated purpose of the conversion of this apostle, as really a microcosm of Christian experience. To be sure, there are many things in this account and in Paul's conversion that are extraordinary. We don't believe that every person when they're born again uh, is responding to a tangible, literal sight of the risen Christ. We don't expect a supernatural light, perhaps even just the glory of the risen Christ to surround them and to blind them. We don't expect them to be blinded for certain days. And Well, you can go on into the I say the extraordinary attending circumstances of this vision and of Paul's conversion. But in the main, the conversion is an example of true conversion. Now that in itself, if you go through Acts, you see that there are different accounts and records of those that are converted. And not all of their conversion experiences follow a similar pattern, as it were, as to, again, the things that surround that conversion. But it's the conversions themselves that are uniform. I can just pause even in mentioning that. Often we're called upon to give our testimony. And I encourage you, and we've talked even to some of our young people that give testimony as they apply and want to come into membership. To, to speak about the Gospel. You know, we have to speak about self and how the Lord brought us and so forth. But I remember many times hearing people give testimony of their conversion. And at the end of it, sometimes you wonder, do they even know the Gospel? We used to have to give testimonies in the dormitory at school in our, well, we call them prayer group. Uh, two or three rooms to get together. usually about a dozen guys. And... You spent the first few nights of the year kind of going around the room and hearing people's testimonies. That was a remarkable experience in itself once you come to wrestle with the doctrines of grace. But how often it might be, well, you know, we had this speaker in at church. It was a special meeting and it had a big pizza blast for the young people. I was at one of those. We advertised the biggest pizza blast in the city of Winston-Salem. And there was a lot of pizza there and there was a lot of visiting people there. But... Then you go along and say, well, it was great. We had this pizza and we did this. And, and then the guy spoke and I went forward and got saved and all that. And then they go on with telling you more different things. And it's like sometimes I wanted to grab the guy and say, wait a minute, can you elaborate on that? I went forward and got saved and all that part. Tell me about that. That's what Paul did. He spoke boldly that Jesus is the Christ. He opened the Old Testament and showed them how He fulfilled all of those pictures of our redemption. I've gone off into another sermon, but here I say Paul's conversion and all the other conversions in Acts show us all those key pieces of what it is to be brought savingly to Christ. And so I want to look very simply at the steps of that as we consider this today. The first is his pre-conversion state. What's his condition 
before this meeting with Jesus. Luke has mentioned him three times so far in the book of Acts. In chapter 7, the latter part of the chapter, he's mentioned first, and that's in association with the martyrdom of Stephen. That the men that stoned him laid their coats down at the feet of one named Saul. It's not stated explicitly, but the implication there seems to be, and many commentators understand it to be, that Paul was somehow orchestrating this stoning of Stephen, the first martyr. Whether he initiated and orchestrated and all of that, it said nonetheless he was consenting unto his death. In chapter 8, the opening verses of the chapter speak again of this Saul of Tarsus going forth destroying the church, going house to house, dragging them that name the name of Christ before the council. And then we see in the opening of this chapter, Saul yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. It's interesting both in the little account in chapter 8 and these verses in chapter 9, there's some language that's used with regard to Paul's activities that's used elsewhere, some in the Greek translation of the Old Testament Scriptures and other places, with regard to animals, to beasts, tearing flesh, and so forth. This Saul is described really as a devouring beast persecuting the Lord's people. Such are the results. Such are the evidences of his depravity. Well, it's not everyone that is brought to Christ that has reached those depths of sin. And you see how greatly it impacted Paul and his penitent heart with regard to those former exploits, you might say. And we might even think of others. I had the thought of Nathaniel when I was thinking about Paul and his pre-conversion state. Well, Nathaniel, as the other disciples in those early days of Christ's earthly ministry, bring him to the Lord. The Lord Jesus says, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. You might say, well, here's somebody that before he was brought to Christ didn't live like Paul did. But yeah, think even about the phrase, an Israelite indeed. A true Israelite. Nathaniel's one in whom grace already lives. And we might not, I say, in all of our cases, or in each case certainly of believers throughout history, see persecutors and murderous sinners. But yet, how different are we outside of Christ? We're described as spiritually dead. We're described in Romans 5 as those that are the enemies of God. Paul doesn't set boundaries and say some subset of his church were enemies and when they were in that state, they were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. It includes us all. All of us who have sinned and come short of the glory of God are enemies of God. We're rebels against His law and against His person. And how that spiritual deadness, how that depraved state works itself out in the life, yes, may vary from person to person. But it is still a deadness in trespasses and sins. Paul exemplifies for us one who is without hope 
And without God in the world, if we can borrow even his description of the Gentiles, that was true of himself. We come to consider then, secondly, his gracious encounter with Christ. If Paul's pre-conversion condition was not evidence of the fact that it was the sovereign grace of God and nothing else that brought him to Jesus, well, Paul's own descriptions of his conversions speak to the fact. He says in Galatians 1 that it pleased God to reveal His Son in me. That's a sovereign God working, it seems, does it not? He says it strikingly in Philippians. He speaks about being apprehended of Christ. He was arrested. Paul, I think this one's kind of interesting because Paul was on his way to Damascus with authority, with letters from the chief priest to arrest people and bring them bound to Jerusalem. Can you picture that? Here's Saul, his entourage for those several days' journey between Jerusalem and Damascus, and they're just about to get there. And Paul's zealous to get there because it's the middle of the day. It's desert on the outskirts of Damascus, and they're pressing on midday. No time to hide from the noonday sun. We've got to get there and get this done. And Paul's going to boldly come into the city and arrest people. Instead, he's arrested of God. His companions have to literally help him into the city because he can't see. Paul says, God apprehended me. He describes it in 2 Corinthians. God even harks back to the work of creation. The God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul indeed gives all glory to God and His salvation. He says in 1 Timothy 1 that grace was exceeding abundant toward me. Using really language there that would be used of an overflowing river. This is how Paul describes his gracious encounter with Christ. You don't see him kind of cleaning up his life, making amends. He was trying to maintain and present a righteousness before God that was his own, to be sure. But he didn't feel need, he didn't feel conviction of sin. He felt quite worthy to be in God's presence. Quite worthy to snuff out the followers of this Jesus. But Christ appears. There were, perhaps, can we say, things that were going on in his life before that moment on the Damascus Road. We don't have them delineated for us in Scripture, except we do have the statement that Christ makes. He says, Saul, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. The picture there is of sticks that were used oftentimes with a young ox 
wasn't quite used to the yoke and to the work and the plowing to, to goad him along. And apparently there were goads that had been put in Paul's life that, well, he's kicking against. He's struggling. One of the commentators I was reading quoted a, a philosopher who remarked that oftentimes people that are the most fanatical and zealous in particular matters are really struggling with uncertainty about those very matters. Well, that's a little uninspired observation of human psychology. But even once in a while, some of those people observe a truth. Paul perhaps is struggling. And the Lord says, it's hard for you to kick against these prods. What had been prodding Paul along? Again, we can't speak with certainty. The Lord doesn't record it for us as far as delineating them. But think of his experience. Could it even be that this Saul of Tarsus is wrestling with questions? Wrestling with doubts? It's one of the, I don't know if mysteries is the right word, it's one of the curiosities of New Testament studies is the question of whether Paul and Jesus ever met. We don't have any record that they did. But they were roughly the same age. Paul perhaps a slightly younger contemporary of Jesus. Paul we know was brought up at the feet of Gamaliel. He was no stranger to Jerusalem, though he was Saul of Tarsus. Could it be that in those three years of Christ's earthly ministry, that they never converged in Jerusalem at the same feasts? Could it be that Paul had never heard as all the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin council of which he was a part, weren't speaking about this Jesus? The miracles that he was doing? The multitudes that were following him? Paul certainly had heard of Christ if he had not indeed met Him. You just wonder what that must have been if in the mystery of the Incarnation, and this is where we have to always be so careful, but the communication between the divine and the human natures and the person of Jesus. If the divine nature allowed in that human moment the eye of Jesus to meet the eye of Paul and Jesus to know what was coming. Well, again, we don't know. But doubtless Paul had heard of Jesus. You think of the testimony of Stephen. Commentators usually give pause here to think. Here's Saul, murderous, Zealous for the tradition of the elders. Zealous, it appears, for God. I always think of Paul when we have that account. The Lord, late in his ministry, said to the disciples that the days will come when those that are trying to kill you will think they're doing God's service. Certainly that describes Paul or Saul. You read in the close of chapter 6 as Saint Peter or Stephen gave his testimony before the Sanhedrin. They saw his face 
It looked upon him as it had been the face of an angel. Many commentators surmise, wrestling with that, that perhaps there was a shining in Stephen's face, somewhat akin to that that was a shining in Moses' face after he had seen just those shadows, as it were, of the the passing of the Lord. How can anyone see the testimony of Stephen praying for his murderers? wishing them not to be held accountable for their crime. Perhaps indeed his heart is still hardened. Or perhaps indeed this is one of those goads that he's kicking against. And what of his own conscience? We won't try and wrestle with the fullness of the debate, but I'll just say it is my opinion. I cast my lot in with those that believe Paul is the author of the book of Hebrews. And if you see the testimony that he gives there is his heart overflows with burden for his brethren, the Jews, his kinsmen according to the flesh. And just recounts to them how indeed it isn't possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Perhaps even as he speaks in Hebrews of their inability to purge the conscience. That one of the goads Paul was kicking against was a conscience that was persuading him that his righteousness wasn't enough. That those ceremonials, laws, and procedures that he gloried in were not enough. That there must just be something more. Something all those things pointed to. But all those things couldn't do. Well, whatever the goads were, what preparatory work was done or not done, again, we don't know. And even these things, if they were indeed true, if Paul's wrestling with his conscience, if he's impressed with the testimony of these believers, and if he has some questions about this Jesus that he had heard about and potentially heard and met, well, maybe his heart was still like a stone. All of these things that he knew and saw and perhaps experienced were of no avail until he met with Jesus. Paul had known the facts of the Gospel. Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to die for the sins of His people. He claimed to rise from the dead the third day. Paul knew those facts. The Pharisees knew the facts. That's why they asked Pilate for a guard for the tomb. Now it's more than knowing the facts of the Gospel. Now he's persuaded of them. He's also persuaded that his own distorted ideas about the Old Testament Scriptures, about his own righteousness, about his own standing before God, that all of these ideas are wrong. He's persuaded that there is one way of access to God. 
And that is Jesus, the promised Messiah. Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. Paul had a gracious encounter with Christ. This is what everyone that is outside of Christ needs. Whatever their understanding, whatever their background, whatever facts of the gospel and truth about Jesus they know, it's only meeting with the sovereign Christ. It's only in being persuaded of our own inability to save ourselves that we can cry out with Paul, Who art thou, Lord? Paul's gracious encounter with Christ. But finally, this morning, would you think with me about his immediate transformation? There was a verse that was used greatly in my life as a teenager. Wrestled often with it. Paul's words. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. New creation. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. You think about Paul's own mind. As, yes, under the inspiration of the Spirit, he penned those words. What a testimony of himself. If you see here the record and you go further in the New Testament and see Paul giving account of this over and over again, he's just amazed with grace. I wanted to sing Newton's hymn today. Amazing grace. Paul goes forth and preaches Christ in the synagogue in Damascus. That that is given for us here in this account from the days in Damascus and then in Arabia, he mentions in Galatians, he sojourned there a while and then he's taken to Jerusalem, he meets with the apostles first and with the brethren. These weeks and then months and years from Damascus to Arabia to Jerusalem to Caesarea and then Tarsus. You think of those days of growth and grace. But Paul preaches immediately Christ in the synagogue at Damascus. He's got papers to give to the leaders of that synagogue to arrest people and take them out of there for believing in the Jesus he's now preaching. Well again, it may not be that in each conversion someone's life is so radically changed from a persecutor to a preacher. But yet the change when one passes from death into life is notable. The New Testament speaks about those that are converted from their former lives. And it said their, their previous friends, they think it's strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot. Why don't you party anymore? I don't know what words are used today. I'm a child of the 70s, but party was the word used then. It encompassed a lot of stuff. New creature. 
old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Imagine the newness in Paul's understanding. He had knowledge. He had a knowledge of the Old Testament that would be unparalleled probably in our day. I mean, you'd have to take the most senior and studied Old Testament scholars of our day and wonder even then if the grasp of just the text of the Old Testament Scriptures would compare with that that Paul possessed, but yet without understanding. And now light breathed into him. What have we seen in some of these other post-resurrection appearances? The Lord opened their hearts that they might understand the Scriptures. It's a wonderful thing when you come to understand something you know. There are a lot of ports of the Scripture that I knew as a boy growing up in Sunday school and memory verses and other things. When I came to understand the doctrines of grace, wow. There's a lot of hymns that I had sung and had committed to memory decades ago. And I came to understand grace and I... Wow. I know a little more about what Newton's talking about when he said it was grace that taught my heart to fear. And grace my fears relieved. I say imagine Paul's unfolding of the Old Testament Scriptures. There's other parts of his transformation that are recorded here. and They're precious and really have tangents we could follow in our own way, but our time is gone. But you look at Ananias and Barnabas. The Lord speaks to Ananias and says, I want you to go. There's this man over here in this house. I want you to find him. He needs, he's been told that a man named Ananias, you... You're going to come and touch his eyes and he's going to be able to see. It's, his name's Saul. Saul of Tarsus. Lord, I've heard about this man. My Lord says, go. He's a chosen vessel unto me. And when Ananias goes, did you notice in verse 17, he went his way and entered into the house and putting his hands on him said, Brother, Brother Saul. There's a lot of grace there. There's a lot of understanding of the gospel there. Lord, I didn't say, Lord, I'll do it, but this guy's got a lot of territory, a lot of ground to make up before I'm going to really love him. You know, he's got to, he's got to earn enough merit with you like me to really get a welcome going to be kind of partial for a while and he can get some brownie points and we'll we'll take him in that your heart with new converts those that maybe have been converted out of desperate situations their salvation is a little different than ours really brother Saul and then, when Paul comes to Jerusalem and he wants to join himself to the brethren there, again, there's the apprehension. 
you know, is this real? I mean, is this kind of undercover work? Kind of get in here thinking he's one of us and get some names and addresses, little contact information, and then the real Saul's going to come out again? Barnabas, the son of consolation. There's the gospel heart. So, brother, Saul has a new relationship with himself, really. A new relationship with the Lord. And quite a new and different relationship with the Lord's people. What a heart he had for the church, for the people of the way that he had once persecuted. And how this man would become willing to be persecuted, to promote and publish the grace of the Lord Jesus. There are a hundred different directions we could go in looking at the conversion of Paul as a model, an example of real conversion of true Christianity. These we've briefly surveyed together. But here, this last of those post-resurrection appearances of the risen Christ, I say is a microcosm of the conversion of every believer. There may be preparatory work, different goads, different things that prod us along, but it's ultimately that real meeting with Jesus. That real passing from death unto life that makes us and marks us as His own. And it is indeed all, all of grace. It was grace, well, grace that taught Saul to fear. And grace his fears relieved. And grace that compelled him to preach Jesus and the grace of the Gospel of Christ. Let's bow our heads together. Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful today Everyone that knows what it is to be born from above. That we can read this account, and yes, the extraordinary things didn't happen. And yet the normal pieces of conversion are in their own way extraordinary and quite truly supernatural. And so we give You praise and thank You for the grace that is freely given to us in the Lord Jesus. The same Jesus that revealed Himself to Paul that has revealed Himself to us. Prosper Your Word, we ask, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.